Thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, so today is Saturday, May 26th, uh, 2018, and it's 7.10 p.m. in Chicago, Illinois, and this is the, I believe it's the 159th episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, So for those of you listening to the audio recording, which I'm going to release in June, we're recording this at, live at the United Astrology Conference in front of an audience of, of uh, our Real colleagues. People. Of actual astrologers. <laughs> right. An audience of 20,000 people. Right. Yeah. Uh, so tonight we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to have a discussion about uh, the conference, about the future of astrology, and about where astrology is headed if we were to look back as historians at this era in the astrological tradition, and if we were to try to anticipate where things are going and how people in the future will will characterize and look back on what we're doing today. Um, So where should we, before we get to the the main topics, are there any like major things we should touch on first? Um, So what have you been doing the last couple days, Chris? So I've been uh, here at the United Astrology Conference oh, really? uh, having a great time, actually, meeting a lot of podcast listeners. There's at least 100 of us in the room tonight, uh, so thank all of you for, for attending and for coming to the conference. How many of you, is this your first conference? Wow. wow. That so, is fantastic. Yeah. So Welcome. A, a lot of people uh, are here for the first time, meeting other astrologers, making connections, hopefully connections that will become lifelong ones. Uh, so one of the reasons I wanted to get everyone here tonight is because sometimes at these conferences, even though the social component is so important, if it's your first time attending and you don't know anybody, it can be hard to make connections with other people uh, until you realize that you all have something in common. So obviously, the main thing we all have in common is our interest and our passion for astrology. Uh, but tonight, the other thing we all have in common is we all listen to the podcast and some of the discussions that I've had on it over the course of the past few years. So I actually started the Astrology Podcast in June of 2012, immediately after the last United Astrology Conference. So uh, that it, it's been an interesting, what, six, six years, years since yeah. that time. Yeah. And this is basically almost the six-year birthday of the Astrology Podcast as a result of that. So I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to do is just make sure all of you connect with each other. And after we're done here, um, I'd love it if each of you would just uh, go around the room and introduce yourself to each other. And, you know, sometimes it's much easier to introduce yourself once you know that you share something in common. And since we all know that we've listened to the podcast, maybe a good conversation starter is just, what is your favorite episode of the podcast? Uh, and you might find that there's other people that have uh, the same you know, interest, or you might find the other person actually hated that episode and thinks it's you know, the worst episode of the podcast, which in, in many instances they might be right. Uh, 
But either way, it will have started a conversation, and you guys can remember that conversation, and perhaps it'll start a friendship, and you can go from there. Because really, we actually all met at conferences. Yes, I met you finally at, I almost met you at the 2008 United Astrology Conference. We kind of flew past each other. Yeah, why was that again? There was a specific reason, I think. (laughs) I was a little otherwise occupied. You you met your future husband there. I did. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't really do a lot of astrology that weekend, but I did see you. <laughs> Look, it's Saturday night. We're saltier in person, maybe. Um, I, I remember seeing you, Chris, though, because people had. I was I was still in Australia at that point and hadn't yet. I was just going through my Saturn return, but had already been working as an astrologer for seven or eight years and was doing something similar in Sydney that you were doing in the States with a young astrologers kind of group. So I kept hearing about this mythical, you know, young astrologer from America, Chris. And so it was kind of weird to, you know, see you in person. But I think it was really Norwalk a few years later that we actually got to know each. Or maybe it was uh, New Orleans. I'm not sure. But yeah, it, was... it was definitely through the conferences. Like we wouldn't have had these chances to get to know each other. Right. It was. Uh, we yeah. hit it off at UAC 2012, That's and then right. I think after that we were inseparable. Norwalk at the same time. Yeah, yeah we and just we... used to. One of the early episodes is us just getting back from our first Norwalk together That's and just right. talking about our experience. Yeah, the conference afterglow. So in 10 years before that, Austin, you and I actually yeah. first met in person at a conference as well, right? Yeah, the Project Hindsight Conclave in 2006. So um, just a little tidbit about that. Um, so Chris and I knew each other online, and Chris went re- went out of his way to convince me to drive down to Cumberland. And this this shows, I think, this is very characteristic of Chris. I remember driving up in my like big, um, beat up black Ford Taurus, and got out of the car. And Chris is like, "Hey, it's nice to see you." And you know, I wanted I invited you down because I think we're going to be working together for the next several decades, and I wanted to become friends early in this process. <laughs> Because if you know Chris, Chris always has a plan. Sure. It worked. It worked. I just had a good, a good sense about the guy, and I think it worked, it worked out. So. All right. So, uh, yeah. So we're halfway through the conference at this point. Uh, it's a good time to meet other people, and that's part of what this is about. Um, but we also wanted to have sort of a broader discussion uh, that would be useful both to everybody in the room as well as everybody listening to this in the future, uh, just about this, this moment in time and this moment in history in the astrological community. So I was talking to Lee Lehman uh, earlier today for an interview, and she said for a lot of older astrologers, they would often tell time, and their sort of calendar was uh, by looking back and thinking at when an event happened relative to the last UAC. So because it would always happen in these four-year increments or sometimes six-year increments, they could kind of, that was a major, became a major landmark in their life, and they could think about some of the major changes that happened in the astrological community during those periods. So for example, uh, the first United Astrology Conference was in 1986. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1982, or sorry, 1992, uh, Robert Hand and Robert Schmidt and Robert Zoller met up at the United Astrology Conference in Washington, D.C., and decided to formulate Project Hindsight. And so this led to this flurry of translation activity that um, turned into a whole movement. 
Uh, at other UACs, I think Kepler College was formed at one point when uh, some people got together and said, let's create a college for astrological studies, uh, and so on and so forth. So these are often important turning points in the astrological community, but it's often uh, very small beginnings that you sometimes don't realize what a major thing it's going to be when it happens. So, Austin, you one of the, I guess, the first discussion topic is... Um, with the advent of technology and, and the way things are going and the advent of podcasts and YouTube videos and online courses, there's kind of a question or almost a crisis in the astrological community that's developing, which is how do uh, both local astrology groups and astrological conferences where people come up and meet in person, how do those stay relevant when you don't have to fly around the world in order to take a class with a famous astrologer anymore, but you can just take a class with them online. So what is the component about coming to an event like this that either will still stay relevant in the future despite those technological advances, or what can we do in order to continue to make events like this relevant uh, in some way, or should we try? Uh, is this worth it in the long run? So that, that was one of the questions that I sort of had or wanted to discuss briefly tonight. Yeah, we were talking about how the virtual interaction and virtual space and physical space um, define each other's meaning. And so as, you know, as more as possible in the virtual world, it changes the meaning of what we can and can't do and what is worth doing um, in the physical and um, it, I don't think we meant it to be this way, but we ended up with kind of uh, a top five list of reasons it's we useful did. to actually be around people. Yeah. <laughs> like in person. Yeah. I, 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 was, I contributed very little to this list. <laughs> um, so, Kelly, one of my favorite points on that was a, the point you made, um, which was, the difference between what you find when you search the internet for what you know you want or unknown versus what happens when you go to a place where there are people who know things that you don't even know that you don't know yeah. and the bumping into people and the difference of encounter. Totally, yeah, because when we were sort of brainstorming that idea of you don't know what you don't know and when you come to a conference like this we're all each other's pollinators. So, you know, you come out of a lecture or you meet someone in the hallway and somebody's buzzing and you're like, why? You know, who did you see or what? And they're like, oh, my God, that lecture or this talk or I just heard about this thing. And if you're not in the hallways to have those kind of collisions, you don't get that cross-pollination. And when you're online, and this is something I think we were both on this sort of bandwagon, you go looking for something specific and you, you go looking until you find that, but you don't necessarily go off as many tangents online as you would in person. So when you open yourself to an event like this, you get a chance just to take in that pollination without controlling what it is, I guess. Yeah, it makes me think of um, uh, the, you know, the ability to search online is almost like the, the genie's curse to get mm. what you wish for. Yeah. You get what you think you want. Yeah, but not necessarily what you need. And something at an event like this, you have a chance to get something that might stir you that you didn't know you needed. Sure. So there's something about the almost chaotic nature of conferences where um, you know, you could make this random decision to go into a lecture on a topic that you've never heard of or you've never studied before or maybe you think you're actively not interested in, but then suddenly find something that you didn't expect and find something that there's, that's valuable there and that you wish to actually integrate into your practice and it could change the rest of your life. 
So that's one of the things that's valuable about conferences is having that ability to get a cross-section of the entire astrological community in a relatively short span of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes you have to actively still push yourself to do that by looking at the schedule and perhaps going to a lecture that you might not otherwise uh, just as a process of, of growing and challenging yourself as an astrologer. Absolutely. What were you going to say? Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this, uh, I think this falls under the category or into my Uranus and Taurus category box mm. because, you know, w with Taurus, the in some ways most solid of the signs, and Uranus, that revolutionary, you know, lightning from heaven sort of energy. Um, there, one of the things that emerged in my thinking with that was like the radicality or um, actually being physically present as a radical act mm -hmm. in a digital age. Sure. In my mind, that was the meat space revolution. That's how I, uh, that's how I abbreviated it. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that's not a radical thing if there wasn't internet, but context, you know. Because there is something that I think to your point, Austin, that meeting in person in an age where you can get information without meeting in person, it's kind of playing into something that is really hard to put into words because we did try between all the words that Austin and I sometimes come up with. We, you know, that feeling of sort of fullness or moreness when you encounter someone in person, when you've previously just been able to interact with them online, it's almost overwhelming in the first instance. And I know you guys have had experiences that I know we've had where you meet someone at this conference or other conferences in person for the first time. And there's just this sense of more, like the energy feels bigger and that is really magical and but you get more out of the encounter and one of the points that I thought about on this you know why meet in person is so much of our communication is actually non-verbal and when you're in person you get to experience the physical the energy the emotional and a lot of that is kind of lost or filtered or kind of weirdly morphed when you connect online so I think online is great for information delivery, but for that experience or that kind of felt sense, that's where the in-person, I don't think it can ever be replicated. And that's why I, I don't think conferences like this go out of fashion, even as the world becomes increasingly digital, because we still need to come and have these encounters and these connections in person. So then we can take that back to our communities and pollinate further from what we have received here. Yeah, um, and I, I, I had the feeling, I, I met a couple people that I, I knew online, but I hadn't met in person before, earlier today and the day before, and I, it was like I was meeting the rest of them, like that's I knew right. like 20%, yes. I was like, oh, that's the yeah. rest of you. Yeah. I wasn't wrong about that 20%. Yeah. Yeah. And then people get that, you know, the other yeah. way. Somebody, was, uh, somebody remarked, oh, I thought you'd be taller <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> And apparently I'm smaller online, so that was weird. Somebody was like, I didn't realize you were so tall, and I thought Austin was taller. So there's obviously some, <laughs> some weird height void thing. That like, a, like a bad internet date, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd be taller. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's really and then cool. the other piece that ties in with that is the idea of uh, lineage. So lineage yes. used to be such a big thing in the astrological community where in some communities like in India, you know, we would have a verbal tran uh, transmission of astrology. It would be passed from generation to generation, from teacher to student for centuries. And that we actually reconnect with that a little bit at conferences because you're actually able to run into 
and meet some of the elders in the community and some of the people who have who've been in the community for decades and in some instances are even uh, you know near the end of their careers. Um, but to sometimes make that connection and have that handing off or to actually have some sense of feeling like there's a generation that's coming in as well as a generation that's handing over what they learned from their entire lifetime of studying the subject. Uh, while you can get some of that from reading people's books and other things online, I think there's a much more direct feeling of transmission that occurs at these conferences when you can connect with and sit in the audience or you know, say thank you to somebody like Rob Hand or to Demetra George or uh, you know hundreds of other astrologers that are speaking here at, at UAC this week. Well, and I think a, the complement to that, and I was talking with Christopher Renstrom about this a little yesterday ago, um, <laughs> is that just the the oral tradition of storytelling. Like, let me tell you what Rob Hand was ba- was like back in 1993. Right. Right. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. But I would like if anybody knows. Um, Chris but, Winston probably knows. But there, you know, there that story to like, you know, I, you know, I mentioned that anecdote about like Chris in 2006. Like, well, I wanted to be friends with you early because I, you know, I foresee us working together for decades. Like, yeah. that tells you something about Chris. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny. It's funny you said that, Austin, because Chris, you said something relatively similar to me when we first were getting to know each other, which was something like, I think we're going to be going around together at conferences for quite a while. And I was really struck by that because it made me realize that we were part of a community, but we were part of a particular stage of that community and that we would be growing and learning and developing together because we just happen to be peers. And I think the beauty of the astrological community is it's very large and there are a lot of little components to it. And we all belong to the larger community and then we can all connect with those different, you know, portions, if you like, that really are people that are on the same wavelength or going through similar things to you. And that just feeds that feeling of belonging, which the more we can give that to astrologers, that feeling that you belong to us and we belong to you and we're all in this together, I just think that really enhances astrology as a whole and what astrology can do in the world. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and... And, you know... uh, how should we say, the stronger the container, mm-hmm. the more volatile the explosions that it can contain without breaking apart. Like, the better we How know it... How long we got volatility the, in yeah, the, the better we know each other, the more we can get into it and yeah. get something out of it yeah. rather than just bitterly disagreeing going our separate ways. Yeah, you can go sure. deeper in a, in a disagreement in a respectful way or in a loving way, and that's, that's more meaty. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Chris, your forethought tells us something, which is great. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm Don't just... be embarrassed. It means that you're a, pre- a, a man of foresight and depth. Sure. Which we all know to be true. <laughs> yeah. I think just sometimes when you meet certain people in your life, you have an instant knowing of, of whether or not you, you're going to you know, be seeing that person around again for a long time and whether it, that connection really meant something, something at the time that you made it. In other instances, it, that might not be the case. I mean, you might not realize that you just met somebody who will become significant to you for decades or what have you, but, but with these two, at least, I, I knew right away. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, totally, a, totally a group hug moment. I was like, yeah, that's it. the water. It, happen, it happened on the inside. 
So, <laughs> so what else are we going to talk about? Yeah, so let's... We got lots of stuff. We got heaps. Did We've we get through our point five points? Yeah, I think so. Five okay. was an estimate. Loose, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so the next topic was actually one that Austin really mm. formulated well and came up with, and I, I thought it would be a good one to focus on for the rest of this, and then eventually we'll do, if we have time, a little bit of a Q&A uh, if people are interested. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. You, you should start this because you you formulated this. Well, well um, That's your lead. you know, we were scrambling for ideas of what to talk about, um, and we weeks ago, weeks ago, <laughs> weeks ago, we were scrambling, um, um, and so I don't know. I, I suggested so let's you know we're going to be at UAC, which is kind of the big astrology moment for several years in both directions, and what a better time to kind of take astrology's temperature. Where is astrology at? And so we talked a little bit about that in terms of where astrology, how astrology is affected by the larger virtual versus physical space dynamics. But there's also where the where the art is at technically, and you know what what's happening um, because. When I think about the past in astrology, you know, we, we've had ongoing for a little while now this traditional revival. Before that, there was a, a, um, a really powerful integration of depth psychology in astrology. There's the advent of evolutionary astrology. We also had the 60s and 70s and that huge, um, that point where astrology and the counterculture intersected. And I, I always, remind myself that this is a period of history that I'm living in um, and try to look back at the present from that lens. Like, what will I say? What will everybody say in 10 mm. years? Mm. Um, and so this is not something I think any of us know the answer to, but I think we have some thoughts on it. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of my thoughts, uh, which I have, which is kind of, there's kind of a fun anecdote about today. Yeah. One of my thoughts was that the traditional revival which began in seed form in the early 90s, really got moving in the, in the 2000s, and has become quite successful now. I was saying, I was actually saying to Chris and Kelly earlier, I was like, I, I think it's, it's, it happened. I, th I think like the, the, the body is animate. The revival has happened. The resurrection was successful. Because I was sitting with Demetra George, and I in the bookstore, and I saw a bunch of people walking around with Chris's book, and Demetria was talking to me about how her book was going to be out in just a month. And I thought back to hindsight in 2006, where all of this stuff was very in process, but nowhere near out. And then we have these pretty massive books, like they're you know, like the Chris's it, book, right? It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Demetria's is also going to be a brick. It's, it's, it is going to be a brick. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, it's landed. It's here. Um, and now it's just part of things. And as I was saying that... Demi this was the three of us were just talking, the three of us. And yeah. as you said that, he, Austin literally said, the traditional revival has landed. And then Demetra walks up and she says, ah, oh, you know, it's terrible. Um, the, all the traditional, you know, my traditional classes, they're the all... Yeah, the track. They're all overbooked and they're having to turn people away at the door. It's just terrible. And I was like, okay, yeah, the traditional revival, <laughs> it, it worked. Sure. It's, yeah. you know, it worked well enough to become a problem. Correct. And yeah. apologies to any of you who had that problem. Yeah. Uh, I guess the solution is just arrive early. But it was just a lovely almost synchronicity. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know, maybe not. But it was just funny. You, you literally were saying that. We were sort of deep in conversation and then Goddess Demetria materialises with this commentary on how there isn't enough room yes. for, traditional, for the demand for traditional astrology, basically. Well, and things have changed really rapidly. I mean, 10 years ago when I, when I would give a lecture and ask the room if, if anybody knew what whole sign houses were, maybe four or five people would raise their hands. So a very small percentage of the room. And nowadays... You know, when I ask, like in, let's say, a room like this, how many people know what whole sign houses are? Yeah. Pretty much the entire room, or 98% of the room, raises their hand. So that's important because that's a concept that literally didn't exist in Western astrology until it was rediscovered by James Holden, who published that paper in 1982 where he pointed out that this was an, a concept that existed in ancient astrology and seemed to be a really popular form of house division, but it had been lost. So you go from you know, nobody even knowing about this technique or this ancient concept 30, 40 years ago to suddenly everybody knowing about it, and in some recent polls, uh, a large number of astrologers uh, using it today. So that's a huge and radical shift. Even if you're not like you haven't jumped on the bandwagon and you're just using traditional or medieval techniques, if you're using whole sign houses, that's just an instance of how some parts of the traditional revival have, have influenced very rapidly contemporary astrology today. Mm. Um, but you know, one of the things that's interesting about that, though, is that n none of the three of us, even though we each have interest in traditional or ancient forms of astrology, none of us are, are exclusively traditional astrologers. And I think that's one of the interesting things that's happening in the traditional revival that's also unique and, and maybe characteristic of this time period is there's not a ton of traditional astrologers that are just going fully traditional, but instead there seems to be this merging or this blending of, of ancient and modern astrology that's taking place at this point in time. And it's not fully clear yet what that's going to produce or, or create or what the end result is going to look like a few decades down the road. Yeah, it reminds me of something that um, we, when we were sort of throwing around ideas, the idea of, you know, conferences in person being a bit like being on a spice road, you know, the interaction and the infusion. And that's kind of what's happening here. You know, what you're talking about, Chris, that traditional techniques have been revived. We have translations, we have documentation, we have information about what was done in the past. And it's not so much that we're all trying to do it like the astrologers of 2000 years ago. We're trying to incorporate those techniques into our work today. And there is this weird fusion going on. Well, and I would say in addition to having the techniques in the books, we also have practitioners mm. who've been running those techniques for 10 or 15 years yeah. and can tell you exactly what they look like, exactly how yeah. to use them. How they manifest. Um, and I think that, that um, should we say, conversation between various uh, traditional astrologies, you know, like mm. Banati doesn't look the same as Firmicus. Mm -mm. Um, like you have to have a, a pretty, you have to you have to dust it off and dig it up to see exactly what it is to compare it to another thing. And I think that uh, there's always more to dust off. There's always more to dig up. That's, you know, to a certain degree infinite. But we've got a lot that we can see very clearly now. And that comparison of similarity and difference mm. in approach and technique and philosophy, like that discussion, I feel like we're in a place where that can really um, not just begin, but can become a dominant thing. Because, um, you know, and this is another point, uh, sort of piggybacking on what you were saying about everybody knows what wholesale houses are now, um, is, you know, you all remember conferences where there'd be like one or two traditional weirdos off in the corner. That might be, that might have been you. Um, might have been me. Awesome. Um, 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 
And that's not the case now. It's just part of what we're talking about. It's not that yeah. traditional took over and everything else is garbage, but it's just part of the mainstream of the conversation within the community. Of course, that has a place. And so, you know, and, and so that the, the question is then what comes next? And I think that mm. Mm, the attempts at synthesis, comparison, um, and contrast um, is a big part of it. But uh, another thing that we were talking about mm. that I've become more aware of is that the, and I think to a certain degree, the con which I think to a certain degree is a consequence of the successful traditional revival, mm. um, is the reemergence of uh, astrological magic into what people, into the astrological discourse. <laughs> well, thank you. That, that, that rather affirms the point I was going to make. Yeah. Um, the point I was going to make, so I've, I've been a you know, weirdo occultist for as long as I've been an astrologer, but um, I didn't want to talk about it at astrology conferences because I'd get weird reactions. I didn't, I didn't get uh, a round of applause. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I've been like edging open that like broom closet door for a while. And I noticed that over the last, just maybe the last year and a half, people's reactions, you know, instead of being neutral or puzzled, um, started becoming mm. uh, e extremely curious or enthusiastic. And I'm not sure what it is that facilitated or times that shift, but it seems to be very much the case. And then, um, you know, the, the, the book of essays on astrological magic that right. uh, I edited just came out. And, you know, lots of people are inter interested. It's not, the other, it's not just the other weirdos that I know are into it. Um, and so that's a really interesting thing to me. And I think that that's one of the things that follows on the success of the traditional revival. Um, and I, I also think in terms of comparison and contrast and discussion, that allows the recovery of that in the Eastern Mediterranean and Western branches of astrology, that allows, that will hopefully facilitate um, a discussion about ritual methods with, um, uh, w uh, with Geotishi. So we can talk that the Vedic ritual methods and um, Eastern Mediterranean or Western ritual methods, we can also begin looking at those in relationship to one another which we couldn't do without the recovery of the astrological magic stuff. So that's, that's a, that's, I think that's a piece of it. Yeah, and you, I mean, the, you said something really briefly there that's worth uh, restating, which is that your book on mm -hmm. uh, your compilation of papers the, from a bunch of leading astrologers and people involved in the magical community was just published, and it just showed up for the first time. The very first copies just appeared here at UAC, so that was actually a, probably a landmark subtle moment in the history of astrology, at least in terms of the confluence of those two, two <laughs> traditions, and it was carried out by our very own Austin Kopic. So I wanted to. Yeah. Well, I've been working on it for a while. I mean, that's been part of the mission. Yeah. But, um, well, the gentleman in the bookstore, I don't want to quote his name and say it wrong, but lovely man. He, I was talking to him. This, uh, if you see a lovely man in the bookstore, it was him. <laughs> the beard. And he was very sweet. And I know him from Norwalk, and I'm sorry that I can't remember his name, but I hate to say the wrong one. Anyway, I was talking to him this morning, and he said he has never seen so much interest in a book on astrological magic before. So he's been running that bookstore, not Gregory, one of his cohorts. The lovely um, one. The, yeah, the only one, that's right. Um, he just said he's, he's very passionate about it himself, and he's just like, I'm so excited that this book is getting so much interest. So Maybe you. a little help from Neptune and Pisces? Oh, yeah. I think definitely, so. Definitely yeah. help from Neptune and Pisces. <laughs> yeah. that, who knows, maybe that was the one good thing that the Saturn-Neptune square did. Yeah. 
the one good thing. <laughs> so that's part of where you think things are going. Well, it's part. I think yeah. yeah, I think it's part of it. Yeah, I mean that's and that's an observation about the present, about something that's just been happening. Coming forward. Because it's not new for me, but the interest and reception of it is new. Yeah, it's true, and there's a lot of people doing it. And somebody, when we were having this conversation earlier, somebody said, "Yeah, they read horoscope columns online or in magazines, and they now include sections on rituals that you could do that have some of the properties of talismanic magic in them." That is now going out into mass media and mass. Yeah, um, and um, my friend Nina Griffin writes uh, yeah. writes a column on oh, that for the Mountain Astrologer. You know, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a piece of it, and I, I at least I personally. See, if we're talking about making astrology whole again after a very hard pair of centuries, not just on astrology, but on the world. 19th and 20th centuries were a nightmare. But making astrology whole again, part of that is restoring um, the ritual and magical side of it. Which doesn't mean, because you've got, um, how should we say, the whole shape of astrology back again, it doesn't mean you need to be awesome at everything. It's just whether that is, I'm just like, I'm not, I, I recognize horror as an important piece of astrology, but that's not my jam. Um, right. And I, I just don't have a great skill set there. But just understanding that, yeah, that's a piece of astrology and having the shape right. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy with horary because that's been something that changed with in the past 30 years is horary used to be something that had a bad reputation and, and was treated as disreputable, but now it's something that's at least, even if uh, people don't practice it, it's something that people recognize as a legitimate branch of the tradition that some astrologers use, and it's given a certain amount of respect, even if it's something that you don't practice or or you know, otherwise using your personal practice. And I think that may be what happens with the magical tradition to some extent is just receiving the recognition that there are some astrologers that are interested in and engaged in that and feel like that's uh, valid or legitimate. And even if you don't, like for myself personally, I don't have much background in magic. And so that's not where I came from in terms of my studies, but I at least recognize its historical lineage and that there's important and smart people like yourself who are doing work in that area that's worthy of recognition. Mm. And, and as an astrologer, that even though magic sounds kind of crazy, I, I realize as an astrologer, I can't exactly be throwing stones or I've sort of learned a healthy bit of, uh, to be of humbleness in terms of making quick judgments or assumptions about things before I've studied them. Right. That can't be real. Right. <laughs> and what's funny is, um, you know, I, I also go to um, magic-centric conferences, and they're like, oh, sure, you know, you can, you can call up angels and demons, but the, the planets don't have anything to do with your personality. <laughs> that is absurd. I, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, but literally I, I got that. And what's funny is, um, you know, we're, we're talking about astrological magic, mostly from the astrological community side, but I got the same, or I got a very similar dismissal um, at, um, you know, uh, at magic events uh, about astrology. And so, I, and I've seen the, I've seen both of those communities, sort of average attitude changing steadily over the last 10 years, but something happened like maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Sure. You started going on rooms too, is what happened. You know, you <laughs> the magical community. Uh, and that's why the room supers are here. Uh, well, Gordon told me I had to. <laughs> <laughs>
So I was just following orders. So uh, what else is going on at this point? If we were looking back a few decades from now in the astrological community in terms of new developments, or, or what is this nexus in time that we, we found ourselves in? One of the other points that I had thought about this was, it, and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm projecting personally, but there seems to be a lot more new and younger people, not, not new younger people, but just new people coming into the ask. Like this conference, there are so, I mean, I know it's a big conference, but all UACs are big, but there just seems to be a lot of people attending for the first time. And I'm, the last few conferences I've been to, NORWAC particularly, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of like infusion of new people coming in. Everybody coming in has got backgrounds, you know, a wide variety of backgrounds, but it feels like almost a little bit of a renaissance that this landing of the traditional revival, the influx of like almost like a growth, like we're having a baby boom essentially, like with new souls and beings coming into astrology. And I'm really excited to see what we do as a community. It just feels like we're getting bigger and there's a lot of fresh, enthusiastic energy. And I think that's one of the other things I think is going to come in is this increased level of professionalism. And I don't necessarily mean like business suit and tie. I mean more like people working as astrologers or working with astrology more openly in communities so that we're more comfortable maybe claiming our identity as an astrologer out in the community at large because there's more of us doing it, which then normalizes the experience. It normalizes the role in society and it just continues to make it easier and easier for everyone who comes up the path behind. So that infusion of fresh and new and then where that can go from a working astrologer's perspective, I'm, I'm really interested to see how that flourishes. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you're bringing up, mm, dare I say millennials, um, <laughs> you're bringing up the Pluto and Scorpios. Um, this is a huge... And so I will just say, to your credit, um, when I... I, I you know, I, I think about generations because I'm an astrologer and I think about time and when people are born. But I did like a generations class a uh, month or two ago, so I was really obsessed with it. And when comparing uh, the Pluto and Scorpio generation with my, uh, my Pluto, Kelly and I's uh, yeah. Pluto and Libra, the earlier Pluto and Virgos, uh, and Pluto and Leo, uh, I came to appreciate that in thinking about what it was like growing up during those years, that the Pluto and Scorpios the, how should we say, um, illusory and confining models of reality, which are the norm, seem to have had extremely little appeal to people of the Pluto and Scorpio generation. <laughs> they, um, I, and I think, I think that has a lot to do with what it was like to grow up, to come to political awareness, with 9/11, with the you know with the Gulf Wars, and to and to see the the financial crash of 2008, to see the system failing badly and obviously, um, I think it made um, those model the models of reality that were attached to that far less compelling because they weren't working, and so um, it, it seems it seems to me that Enmos. Uh, as a generation, the Pluto and Scorpios are much. It's much easier for them to cross into the weird, and you know, it's almost it's the it's this lovely dark side complement to the '60s Pluto in Leo's, and they're both big generations. They're both fixed signs, and I don't mean dark side in a bad way. And I don't think any of the Pluto and Scorpios are offended by that. <laughs> I but, don't think dark offends Scorpio. No, but you you know you have um, martial water versus solar fire. Right, one is one is brighter and flower powery, or and then one is more interested in like, oh, witchcraft is real, 
tell me more. Yeah. Like, so how do how do I get some of this? I want right? that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is a huge. It's a big generation it demographically. Yeah. And that's another parallel with the Pluto, the, the Pluto and, Leo. and Leo. Yeah. I almost feel like we've been waiting for the Pluto and Scorpio generation. Save us. To... <laughs> Pl- we Pluto and Libras are too. Uh, it's we're too willing to negotiate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, and I think just looking around this room, I think we've finally seen that many of them have started to come in, that the younger yeah. generations of astrologers are finally in and it, becoming integrated into the community. Uh, so one of, the, one of the reasons for that is like it seems that some of the new technologies are creating platforms for astrologers in order to, to draw some of those people into the community. Uh, so we have like the, the podcast, uh, we have podcasting with people like myself or Adam Summer or uh, Gary Caton or a number of other people that have been doing it over the past decade that are doing really great work. Uh, Eugenia Kroc and the yeah, Accessible I Astrology Podcast. Jessica has a great podcast that reaches a lot of people too. Yeah, yeah. and um, also YouTube is becoming a huge thing. There's some astrologers, for it was a long time, there weren't very many astrology videos on YouTube in the 2000s, and then all of a sudden over the past few years, it's just exploded, and there's people getting you know, 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 subscribers that are following their astrology channels. And certainly there's different levels of astrology being done. Some of it's being done for more mass market, some of it's more intermediate, and some of it's more advanced. But uh, it's drawing in entirely new generations of people and getting them interested and excited about astrology. And then some of those people are finding their way into the established community through events like this or through conferences like this. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was thinking about that, the one of the things I thought, Chris, you know, is that with the increase of newer people of, there is definitely the Pluto and Scorpio generation, but I, I'm seeing a lot of my peers as well, like newer people in the late 30s and 40s that are just, maybe they've done a few other things and now, now is the time for them and their astrology. Um, I actually think that many of the conference organizers in astrology owe a great debt to people like yourself because I think you guys are at this wonderful interface between connecting the public with the community. And I think that's something I've always thought the astrological community has been a little too insular in the past. You know, when people have said to me, well, you know, how do you start an astrology business or, you know, how have you been able to do this? One of the answers to that question is I'm looking for people outside the community because that's where our client base comes from. But it's also where there are other people interested in astrology that just don't know the pathway in. And services like yours, uh, even Nadia Shah on YouTube and other YouTube astrologers, they are really part of this movement to bring fresh people in because it's getting astrology into people who might not otherwise know how to find their way to us. Right, and it's also creating greater diversity in the community, which is yeah. something that's uh, been important and needed for a long time, but it's only recently that suddenly I think it's starting to happen in, in a way that was more dramatic than it, than it was even 10 years ago because there's um, you know, ama- people doing amazing work like Ian with the Queer Astrology Conference, mm-hmm. um, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like Ian, there's uh, Chani Nicholas, who's doing yeah. amazing columns and amazing uh, writings. I think, uh, I don't know if he's here, Barry Perlman and Jessica Lanyado. Yeah, yeah, right over there. Uh, so, and sometimes part of that is just changing the discussions about what's important and what we should be talking about in astrology. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes for a long time there were just people talking about 
you know, what they knew, uh, where they were coming from, but they were coming from a place that maybe wasn't as like uh, inclusive as, as it could have been in terms of what might be interested to other demographics or other groups of people. And now some of those discussions are taking place. And I think that in and of itself is helping to draw new people into the astrological community and uh, put a sort of vibrancy on it that, that wasn't there even 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in Sam Reynolds' work with diversity uh, in terms of people of color as well, that he runs a, or he's got uh, the Norwalk Conference to run some scholarships around that as well. So just diversity on so many levels that is coming in. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think that ties, I think that, yeah, I think that ties back into a larger theme, or it's part and parcel of a larger theme, which is mm. maybe what astrology needs to do to get to the next phase, right. which is make enough space mm. for everybody and all the different approaches, because there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of people coming from a lot of different perspectives, and there are a lot of traditions and 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 new techniques that are coming from what seem like diametrically opposed perspectives, and we need enough space to hold that. Um, and you know, when something is you can tell when there's not enough space, right? Where you, you, know, you go into a social, you know, you, you, you've all run into three or four people talking um, over the last few days, and sometimes there's no, you know that there's no room in that conversation for you, where different three or four people talk, and you're like, oh, no, I can feel they, there's enough space here for me to join or for me to connect. Right. Um, and I think that there have certainly been conferences in the past where there didn't feel like there was enough space um, there wasn't, you know, uh, I, I think this has been handled beautifully, but um, it felt like there wasn't enough space for younger people. That's yeah. a complaint I've heard a lot, um, especially maybe 10 years ago. And, I mean, you and I, Chris, um, certainly <laughs> heard a lot of that being uh, uh, being in a leadership role for the Association mm. for Young Astrologers. But. Sure. Although one of the things we found is, is sometimes you just have to ask for it. And then when, when groups of people get together and want to see something happen, sometimes you just have to get together and start to interface with whatever the established community is and, and ask for that. And, and sometimes that dialogue in and of itself may not always be easy or sometimes it may lead to conflict, but eventually it can also lead to progress and lead to uh, some sort of change. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, even though there was this question of where are the young astrologers or on both sides, eventually, once we did start getting together and once mm -hmm. we started asking, you know, could we have a, a you know, scholarships for a conference or could we, um, you know, organize some talks for some younger astrologers, uh, we found that, that the established community was more than willing oftentimes to make room for that. They just uh, needed a, a prompt or something like that. Yeah, I, I encountered a lot of like, oh my God, where are the young people? We want them desperately, but they, you know, they keep not showing up. I'm like, well, I know, I know a young person who showed up to your group and they felt super alienated and weird and never went back. And, you know, the, those messages need, like, and so the young person in that circumstance didn't know that um, they were wanted. They just, mm. people just didn't know how to relate to them and vice versa. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. so I think the increasing inclusiveness is part of the future. Absolutely. Yeah, it's part of the yeah. present, and uh, hopefully yeah. that keeps going. Keeps going. But hopefully, just um, like-minded people, whatever your interest is, or focus, or, or whatever you would like to see more of in the astrological community, part of the lesson is just try to take an active role in doing so. I mean, I, I myself am not a terribly extroverted person, and so to be organizing an event like this or to do the podcast is kind of 
insane if you went back 10 or 20 years ago and told me we would be doing something like this. But one of the things I've realized is just um, think, some things only happen when people take the initiative. And a lot of times things don't happen because somebody assumes that somebody else will do it or that um, you know, it's going to take too much work or just they just never make that step to push themselves to do whatever that thing is. But I'm hoping that more and more people in the astrological community will just see what needs to be done and then yourself try to take some step to carry it out, whatever that is that you think will help in terms of improving the community. Um. Well, and Chris, I think you've done a pretty fine job making space. Sure. I mean, I've I've tried to as as much as I can for in the in the podcast. I mean, that's mm-hmm. if you go back and listen to the very first episode, that was always my intended goal was to showcase the different approaches to astrology and the different traditions in order to open it up and show people the the richness of the astrological community and the astrological tradition. And that's still an ongoing process. And sometimes there's kind of you know speed bumps in the process. There's different you know, debates about house division or, yeah. or debates about the Zodiac issue or things like that. But at least, you know, keeping a, an open dialogue and putting a spotlight on some of those issues, even if they're hard sometimes, is, is always important. Hugely so. Yeah. And I think that the inclusiveness, I mean, we have, I, I know, I and I think, oh, I think I can speak for all three of us, but we know what it was like to try and you know, break into the community when we were coming up. And I think we've tried to support that in various ways, just, you know, how we are at conferences, but even things like the podcast and doing this event, for instance, because really the goal was just to create connection and help you guys as listeners. So many of you who are here for the first time, you know, maybe feel a little less alone because I know at my first UAC, you know, there wasn't Facebook when I came to my first UAC. Maybe there was, I don't know. I would have been a late adopter if there was. Uh, and so you are sort of just walking around a bit dazed and confused with eyes glazed over. And uh, to be able to, you know, connect with someone and have a conversation, it just really helps you feel like you belong, basically. And that this podcast has been a great icebreaker, I think, for many people. Sure. So. Yeah. Sure. So, um, yeah, so in terms of other things, I think those are the, some of the core things. So the advent of new technology, mm-hmm. um, the, the increasing scope and diversity of the astrological community in terms of this present moment in time. Yeah. Um, the, what else, the increasingly global nature of astrology, that you mm-hmm. have different traditions and different astrologers. There was a conference a few months ago where a bunch of astrologers uh, from the U.S. flew over to India. Mm-hmm. There were uh, a number of Indian astrologers coming over here. I mean, there's a number of astrologers from around the world at this conference today. Yeah, yeah well, and um, this might just be my personal experience, but Turkey seems to be represented well represented. At the conference. Turkey sure. and China, apparently. China's buying at the bookstore, apparently. That's what the gentleman was telling me, the lovely gentleman. <laughs> I was getting a lot of information about book sales. Old, they, bought all the, they bought all the ephemerises, actually. He was like, they, okay. someone just came up and bought this massive stack of ephemerises. <laughs> but I don't think they, that's, I don't yeah, think they the have them. Won't allow, allow them. them. Yeah. So, yeah. Sure. So, and, and then, so I guess that's where, really where we're at in terms of the yeah. um, historical point in time. If people look back, this was the period in time about a decade or two after the advent of the internet where suddenly a bunch of new technologies became available uh, for things like, you know, uh, mobile phones and the ability of people to access information 
quickly and easily in a number of different formats, but also to, to produce and put out content and do podcasts or videos or what have you. And that's, you know, quickly, one of the things I'm noticing is that it's giving people a much more rapid education in astrology than they had at any other Truly. time in history. Yeah. And that's one of the, the last points maybe just to, to touch on is just how fast a lot of you, all of you who especially listen to the podcast have been learning astrology and the things that you're learning are sometimes uh, things that other astrologers in previous generations took two or three or four decades to get to. Uh, and there, there's something about that that's blowing even my mind because it took mm -hmm. me, you know, 10 years to go through some of this stuff that some of you are learning in, in just months. There's a real quickening kind of feeling. It's like people are getting the basics faster or understanding them more easily, and then they're getting into the more meaty, you know, technical or specialized stuff much faster. Sure. Yeah. It's kind of exciting to see. Yeah. It makes me feel a little jealous. But yeah, I know. I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, I, I just had my five Noel Till books that I could find at the used bookstore, you know, in 1999. Yeah. And, I mean, they were good, <laughs> but, yeah. but that's all I had. I know, I was saying to someone that I'm totally jealous of the good quality astrological, basically classes in videos on YouTube. Um, I'm like, I had, to, I had to go to the, a local library that had the slowest internet in the world, and there were a few blogs. And that was, but you'd soak them up. You would take whatever you could when you're in that like, immersion, infusion stage. And there's, you know, there's something you can learn from hunger and isolation. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, you really, you really dig into what, what, what little you have, you know. Yeah. Um. Sure, and, and that's, and that, no, that's actually a funny, it's a joke, but it, that's probably the biggest crisis that new students are running into and, and all astrologers are running True. into is the, the great diversity of the astrological tradition can be overwhelming and now we have a lot of conflicting traditions that sometimes teach vastly differing things and how do you reconcile that? So that's probably the great crisis that if we look back a few decades from now on this period is the period after the revival of so many different forms of older astrology from the Western tradition, from the Eastern traditions, that there was uh, so many different options that it maybe perhaps made it difficult to figure out how to either synthesize them or which one to go with. And it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out over the course of the, the next few decades. That's part of what I'm doing with the podcast is trying to showcase mm. them, but not always giving people the answer of this is necessarily what you should do or what direction you should go yeah, with this. Yeah, just this is the smorgasbord of options. Right, well, you have to ask, you know, if there are different opinions on, uh, on the same thing, like let's say combustion. Like, mm. Okay, when I look at it according to this set of rules, one, what is the rationale? What is supposed to happen? And then what actually happens when I test this in practice? And then compare, you know, a different take on it and, you know, and, and compare them. And if they're trying to say the same thing, one will work better. But oftentimes they're looking, they're looking for, they're looking to pat a different part of the elephant. And you're like, oh, do it this way if you want to see this. Do it this way if this is what you're looking for, mm -hmm. right? To understand a person's interior state, you might use a different technique than to look at uh, what things look like from 100 feet away. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, so we wanted to have just a little bit of time to do a Q&A, so maybe we should transition to that now. Nicholas, you have the microphone. Uh, is Caleb in here? Yeah. Are we good to go with that? So we want questions from the audience? 
Yeah. Does anybody have a question? Does anybody have Just a question? Just raise your hand if you do, and we'll get a microphone. And since you. we're limited on time, we'll, make we'll sure you keep it relatively take... concise. Yeah. We'll just keep it concise. Concise, okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, so my question is, when you brought up uh, the traditional Hellenistic coming into the community, and I'm really into it, but what I've noticed continually here is that, okay, particularly the outer planet rulerships and mm -hmm. the traditional rulerships. So I wonder if you guys can talk about, do you think that's ever going to be, uh, or how that's going to play out? Um, because still Uranus is being uh, uh, played as the ruler of Aquarius, uh, Pluto with Scorpio, and uh, Neptune with Pisces. And I was just wondering if you, could get, you guys would talk about that a little bit. Well, so I don't necessarily know what other people are going to think. I can tell you what I think. Um, so and this is maybe a, a, a point that can spark discussion or disagreement or maybe contextualize different points of view, is that the traditional rulerships are visible planets, mm -hmm. and so they speak to the layers of reality that are visible to the eye. Experiential, And so Uranus and Neptune are real giant things. They're real planets. But it is very important to note that they are a part of their, they belong to layers of our reality that cannot be seen with the naked eye, which I think corresponds to their symbolic meanings a lot. And so if I were looking, um, and so if I were looking for visible, tangible things in a person's life, I would not use invisible planets to do that. Maybe if I were looking for things that existed more in those invisible realms, then I might use them. I, I don't personally, but I can see the rationale for doing so. There's a thought. Yeah. Uh, the other thought that comes to mind, I mean, so in terms of your question, which was how do we see this unfolding, I mean, I, my first sort of response was it's an ongoing discussion, and I think there are different philosophical ideas around people who choose to use modern uh, planets as rulers and there is certainly a huge philosophical component to why people don't use modern planets as sign rulers and I know I always think back to that original sort of the, the chart of the world is that what it's called yeah, theme yeah the theme of Mundi and the way the planets are arranged around the signs it's funny you ask I'm actually putting this diagram up in my talk tomorrow morning um, you know and how that represents the way the kind of cosmos was understood um, historically, and how the symmetry plays into the rulership pattern in the traditional associations. So interfering with the symmetry is my take on what happens when we bring the outer planets in as sign rulers. And I know the Greeks really liked their symmetrical sort of patterns. So um, that's just my personal take, but I do think it's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, and I don't know how that issue is going to be resolved, but I just think it's interesting that there's a choice now and that astrologers are presented with that mm. choice relatively early in their studies. And again, that's a result, and that's another crisis mm. that's happening in the community now that didn't exist two or three decades ago when there was more uh, of a unanimous sort of position on that issue. But uh, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, and that's a good point. It's a choice now. I mean, when we all learned astrology, it wasn't an option. You just had Neptune as the ruler of Pisces. There were, but when other people are learning astrology now, it's like, well, do you want to do it this way or do you want to do it that way? Right. Yeah. Cool. Thank all you. Right. Thanks. Um, yeah, I don't Maybe know. Right here? Yep. Nick's got the microphone. Because he does, doesn't he? Thanks, Nick.
Thanks to Nick Civitello like for yeah. doing this. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. And thank you all. Um, actually, a similar question, um, and maybe it's kind of already answered with um, the invisible issue, but do we have any data on how Neptune and Uranus are affected by sect? Uh, no, I haven't looked into that. Well, there is... Um there's an astrologer that Chris and I knew who's passed. Chris knew him better, but I, I carry a few gems from him around named Alan White, uh, who was part of the Project Hindsight project. And he, <laughs> um, he hypothesized, I don't think he would, he would double down on it, but he hypothesized um, that Uranus, um, Uranus, um, bo- uh, Uranus was sort of like the sun turned up to 11. Mm. You take the idea of individuality and you turn it up to 11. Mm. That there's a real resonance between Uranus and the sun and Neptune and the moon, and that that might provide a basis for an argument for Uranus being of the day sect and Neptune being of the night sect. And I think that mm, the, I would want to look at 100 charts, um, but that, that works for me in terms of what I know about Uranus and the rest of the planets that belong to the day sect. It's very difficult to argue that Neptune is a, is a daytime at work, <laughs> on-the-clock energy, um, but it may also just not end up being useful to think of them in terms of sect. But yeah. I wanted to share that. Sure. Yeah, and there's an, a, a little idea in when I teach on temperament, we often get this question, what are the qualities, you know, of the modern planets? And they totally concur that Uranus is a, a planet that stimulates activity, which would give it the hot designation, which would associate more with the day. And Neptune is definitely more of a, a, a wet <laughs> the most. Uh, but certainly it's cooling because... If you're not sure, think about what you do under a Neptune transit. You sleep more. You slow down. And that's definitely going to correlate with a nighttime experience. Yeah, or, or you drink more. You drink more too, which will also slow you down. Um, but under a Uranus transit, you actually can't sleep. You are yeah, hyper-stimulated. You're wired. You want daytime all the time. So I would come at it from a slightly different angle but end up in the same place. Yeah, that makes okay. sense. Thank you. Thanks. I have a question about um, research in astrology, but not historical research, but statistical research. That means that when you take like hundreds of thousands of charts, like control groups, and you want to figure out, you know, how the sect uh, works or how the zodiac works, which one works, do you think it will benefit uh, the astrological community, this type of research? Sure. So that's an issue I've been, I've been wanting to do an episode on, which is past scientific research into astrology and what happened with that, because there was a lot more impetus in the 1960s and 70s and 80s to do statistical studies into astrology to see if they could validate it and prove that it was real uh, from a scientific standpoint. Um, but, and, and there was a lot of excitement about the work of people like Michelle Gokulin and other um, astrologers or statisticians who are doing that work, but a lot of that kind of fizzled out uh, after the 1980s because basically a lot of the testing or at least the attempts to validate astrology statistically weren't working out very well. And the ones that did seem to work out or that seemed to show some potential statistical significance to astrology became highly contentious in in the attempts to validate them. And there was one scientific group who tested some of Gokland's findings and said that they were able to validate it. And then there was another group that retested and said, no, it's not true. And it became this whole back and forth over that issue for a number of decades. 
but after the 1980s, by the time of the 1990s, it seems like there was this crisis that occurred in the astrological community where some of the astrologers were trying to understand what this meant if they couldn't validate astrology scientifically, and if that meant it wasn't real, if it wasn't true, if it wasn't valid. And different astrologers tried to come to, came up with different conclusions about that. So one of the things that came out of that was the work of Jeffrey Cornelius, who wrote the book The Moment of Astrology, where he argued astrology is divination, and therefore as divination it cannot be tested scientifically because it doesn't fit that framework or that model, but that that doesn't necessarily uh, mean that it's not true. And so that has become a very influential book, and a number of astrologers have have taken that line of, of philosophical argumentation in order to still say that astrology is real, but it can't be tested scientifically because it's not amenable to the scientific method. So a lot of astrologers adopt that position now, and there's other similar variants of that position. And a lot of the excitement surrounding scientific testing has sort of um, gone away. However, there are some groups that are still interested in that, and I've seen some activity over the past few years where it seems like there is some growing interest again in returning to that question of could you validate astrology through any sort of scientific method. Um, and yeah, I think that's still going to be an ongoing discussion that's going to come up again at some point. I don't, I don't know that... Um, you know, I interviewed Jeffrey Cornelius, and that was one of my favorite interviews on the podcast because I'd wanted to do it for so long, and I had a great discussion with him. But we were hoping to do a follow-up at some point to talk about some of the the areas where people might disagree with his conclusions or or where his argument, um, where you could take take some issue with parts of the argument that he made. And there's some people who still treat that as an open question about whether astrology is divination or whether there is any natural component to the subject which could be tested scientifically. So I don't know, and I haven't seen a lot of energy behind that that yet, but who knows if it'll pick up in the future. I just wanted to speak to that briefly. Sure. I, I think that... Um, I think astrology, uh, the body of astrology is composed of tissues of many different levels of density and subtlety. And I think some of those you can catch in a statistical net, but for some you need a, you know, for others you need an entirely um, different uh, approach. Uh, I think there are some heavy pieces that you can probably catch with well-designed studies. And also like what, I don't know, I, I think you have to recognize how what a complicated strange thing astrology is because in their virtues I think to the the purely divination argument but there's no form of div divination where all of the cards are cast for thousands of years ahead of time you know the the planets are the stones or bones or cards that are thrown and we know where they're gonna be mm. right we're not we're not using sortilege there's no uh, randomizing factor and so it, it's not that there's um, no part of it that partakes of uh, divinatory dynamics, but we have to say this is a different kind of thing. Um, and it's a more complicated sort of thing because, you know, is it physical? Well, the sun is physical. The re part of the reason we say that the sun is hot and dry yeah. is because the sun's hot and dry. It makes things right? hot and dry, yeah. Um, but it, but we, can't, we can't stop there. Like, that's obviously not the whole thing. Um, so anyway, I think it's a it's a really interesting and interesting and complicated thing, and I'd love to see um, careful work done to see what pieces might show up in statistics. Right. I mean, that was always one of my issues with the scientific testing, and that all of the astrologers in the 1980s decided that 
they couldn't validate astrology scientifically. I had an issue with that because most astrology at that point was largely psychological, but they were sometimes trying to demonstrate it based on like statements, concrete, making concrete statements about people's lives, but astrology at that point wasn't really designed to do that. And with the revival of some of these older forms of astrology that have um, additional technical concepts like sect, the distinction between day and night charts, I wonder sometimes if um, you didn't revisit some of those studies of astrologers who were more trained in doing more concrete predictive type astrology if they wouldn't be able to be slightly more successful. But that's one of the issues in the astrological communities. There's such a lack of standardization that doing a scientific test really requires everybody to be able to be practicing at the same level. But astrologers are so individualistic and are always at such different levels that you never really find two astrologers that are practicing exactly the same way. So that creates a little bit of an issue. But I'm, I'm hoping that that's something that might work out as the revival of all these different forms of astrology happens, as we create a new synthesis, maybe that can lead to a new sort of standard, sort of baseline for astrology about some astrologers practicing it in a certain way and agreeing on a certain set of principles that they all use. And that's kind of what you see with me and Austin and Kelly, and that's why the forecast episodes work out so well, because we all kind of have fundamentally the same basic technical approach on certain things and while our, our interpretations uh, differ in some areas, there's a lot of commonality between the three of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's about it. But I'll have to save that for another episode that's hoping to, hopefully coming out later this year. I'm going to talk to uh, Kenneth Irving, who's the author of The Tenacious Mars Effect, and documenting Michelle Gokland's work in general and the especially the controversy surrounding the Mars Effect because that was the one piece of astrology that for a while seemed to have some scientific validation. But what was interesting about that story is even when the scientists replicated the study and it turned out that they they thought that they had accidentally proved that astrology was correct, they were so convinced that that wasn't possible that they actually hid the results initially (laughs) uh, and kept it under wraps because they're like, no, this can't be possible, so we must have done something wrong to accidentally validate it. But when it turned out that they did, they had made a mistake, and then supposedly the effect disappeared, and the Mm -hmm. the study hadn't actually proven astrology was true, but they had accidentally kind of shown their cards by demonstrating that if they ever did demonstrate it was true, they might not actually admit it. Uh, So that's hopefully something I'll document on an episode I'm working on on right now for later this year. Cool. Hello. Here. (laughs) Go, Go ahead. For it. Yes, please okay. ask your question. Hello. Thank you all for all the work you have been doing with the podcast. I'm a big listener and I'm very happy to be here right now. So, as a horary astrologer, I was really happy when you did this epi- special episode with Lily Lehman. Yeah. However, we are here at the biggest astrology conference and I didn't see any lecture or workshop totally dedicated to horary astrology. So I'd like to see your thoughts on, is it horary the ugly cousin of astrology? (laughs) What what do you think about this? Because I feel disappointed, actually, that I couldn't find any lecture or workshop on it here, and I felt like it should have. Yeah, I think that's a little surprising and unique, just because part, part of the issue is that in the 1980s and 90s, Horary um, was revived and exploded onto the scene in a really big way. And so there were actually a lot of lectures on Horary, and there was like an entire NCGR journal on it at one point and a lot of excitement. 
Uh, but what happened, I think, here was just unique in that some of the astrologers that specialize in horary or that's their primary practice, they had already done so many talks or workshops on horary that they just didn't this time. So Lee Lehman, for example, gave two talks at this conference, but they were just on different topics. Or I think Ryan Butler, if he's in the room, he gave uh, he's a primarily a horary astrologer, and he gave a talk on uh, something herbs, else on herbs, yeah, herbs, and medical herbs. or health astrology. <coughs> so yeah. Eve Dembowski as well. Yeah. Eve's he, yeah. So and, sorry. It may have just been a, a matter of coincidence, but that may have been actually that may be a good point that perhaps each of the branches of astrology should be recognized, and perhaps there should be an attempt to balance that out more in the conference program so that it's all not you know, all slanted towards natal or towards mundane or electional or what have you, but that you at least have some of the other branches represented? You know, there are so many tracks. I just assumed that there was a horror track and I missed it. Well, there, yeah. there is a traditional track. And I think one of the other factors that comes into your point, because as you were saying that, I was like, there isn't actually a talk in the program. Yeah, now on that you mention it. Now that you mention it. But part, it, it's a combination of things. Like there is a traditional track. As Demetra said, there is no room in the traditional track in terms of the seats in the lectures. But part of it, as you're saying, Chris, the topics that get presented, often there's a few different ways that speakers are selected and that topics get chosen. And if you're chosen as a speaker, you're often asked to submit a handful of topics. And, you know, if none of the topics you if Wade or Ryan or Lee submit, maybe they did submit horror talks and they weren't chosen, or maybe they're just talking about something different right now. So it is, it is unfortunate that it worked out that way. Um, and that it is kind of interesting that in all the lectures that are happening over six days, there sure. isn't one, is there? No. There was one on planetary That's... hours and one on electional, but no, you're right. It's like associated, but not. That's, That's really interesting. Yeah, because so um, it's, it's partly what topics the speakers include on their list. Yeah, yeah. and one of the things I will say about that it, that actually is a good, like, actionable point is that if there are things like that that you see, again, that you want done, the astrological organizations could really use help. Um, and they're actively looking for people from the newer generations of astrologers or people that are just interested in volunteering to join their boards or to volunteer and put in the work in order to help put on conferences like this, to help you know pick the conference program, to uh, pick the speakers and other things like that. And um, that's something I hope you know everybody here, once you attend this conference and once you get home, if you have a good experience and you want to see something like this happen again in the future, then one of the best ways you can one of the best things you can do to ensure that that happens is join the astrological organizations and become involved because they actually not just need help, but they need an infusion of new energy in order to keep pushing forward and ensuring things like this happen in the future. And without that, they, they, you know, will probably not do very well, or we may not have another conference of this nature, just because there'll be nobody there to run it, because it takes a tremendous amount of energy. Yeah. So uh, on that. Okay. So I, I have a point I want to piggyback on that, in terms of if you see an absence of the type of lectures you would like to go see, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you uh, say something. Um, you'll probably yeah. get like a how was your UAC experience form, but actually, actually actually fill it out. Yeah, and there is actually on the app there is an opportunity to provide feedback. I noticed that yesterday. So if you're on your your device, you can actually you could go in there right after this and say where are the horary lectures. And then one and more. And they they'll pay attention. I know that they do read all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Um, I was just going to say. So I was having a conversation last night 
um, <clears throat> with somebody about astrological magic. I was like, oh, it seems like people are kind of into it now. And we were just talking about that. And he's like, so what would the, you know, what, what would the, um, what would the bar for success, you know, for successful, successful ugh, uh, reintegration of astrological magic into the astrology scene look like? He's like, would it be maybe an astrological mat, astrological magic track at the next UAC? And I was like, yeah, yeah. that that yeah. that's the perfect. So you know, if you wanna if you wanna write that on your form, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So this this is actually, I think, speaking to the point that we mentioned earlier about the traditional revival landing. Now it seems like we need more than just one traditional track at a big conference like this. We actually need tracks for specialized branches within the traditional field. Like there could be a track that was uh, horary and electional, which do have some sister techniques. There could be uh, the magic track. Like Harry Potter kind of track, maybe. Right. Yeah, and, and this was the first time that there was a traditional track. So did you did you guys hear that? Yeah. So this yeah. was the first time there was a traditional track. Really? So it's going to be based. Yeah. Last time it was folded, it was the history slash traditional right. track. So yes, it wasn't actually separate. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for that question, though. Um, I think we're we're running out of time. So there's a couple more over here. Yeah, yeah. they've had their hands up. They've had their hands up since the beginning. So just want to make sure. Um, thank you. Uh, I first just want to say I don't. I think it's important to recognize the importance of this podcast in terms of the traditional revival. That's for you, Chris. <laughs> uh, I anticipated that reaction. Um, one of the things I, I I've, I've noticed. Um, at UAC over the past few days is the the incredible amount of, like you were saying, the incredible amount of diversity of techniques, but also the incredible amount of sharing of people from different schools of thought. And I really am impressed with just how much of the, how much cross-pollination happens. All kinds of cross-pollination, in fact. Um, <laughs> Ahem. I swear, I have not seen this many ridiculously attractive people in one place in my life. In this room, in this conference, I just basically almost everyone I meet is ridiculously attractive. So my question, and I'm serious I'm about this. I'm very intrigued by what this. Why are all why are astrologers at a certain level all this attractive? Hashtag hot young astro. I don't know. Hashtag hot young astro. People are saying astrological magic. Okay. I don't know. How do we answer? Just to the left. Why are all astrologers at such at a certain level so attractive? So why does astrology make you hot? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe some of those, those planetary effulgences act like a sort of exfoliating lotion as they come down. I don't know. Stardust. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure there really is an answer, and but that's a lovely observation. Is, it, is that not a good note to end that, on? Well, that was a good... <laughs> uh, just two more. So this one okay. and this one, and then Aaron's we'll, we'll end. Yeah. 
So how did you all know and identify the kind of astrology you wanted to specialize in? Was it a gut feeling or like a logical resonance with that field or were you filling a void? Um, so how did you really determine that? Sure. I just follow my obsession. Whatever is interesting to me, that's what I do. And I will do that as long as I'm interested in it. And the things that I'm good at are just things that were that interesting to me. Yeah. It's a really good question because people often think that we have like a plan. I know Chris has a lot yeah, of plans Chris, for a lot Chris of things. Chris probably had a plan. But, <laughs> but for most people, it's just, it is literally, I'm interested in this. This has captured my curiosity. I want more of that. And it is just a matter of following the breadcrumbs, basically. So I discovered Hori Astrology in a lecture that John Frawley gave at a conference 15 years ago. And I thought, that's interesting. And at the conference I was at, Lee Lehman was speaking and Demetra George was speaking. It was the first time I heard someone talk about the ship and the helmsman. That was obviously Demetra George. And I liked it. It resonated. So I just went for more. I was like, where can I get more of this? And that just fed into... This. This is so, de- this is delicious. More, please. Yeah, exactly. I'd like another serving. So, it's just following the breadcrumbs. Can yeah. I add something to the question because uh, I just want to ask the exact same. Uh, in addition to that, uh, in, a, in addition to the question, uh, because I just was uh, thinking the same thing. Uh, what if uh, you are interested in several things and? You like to collect information, you know, different. <laughs> This is my story. Uh, so, um, as we all know, it takes time to master on uh, a certain area of astrology. So, yeah. how do we decide? I want. Sure. What are you most obsessed about? So uh, I would just say really quickly, partially answer that, and then yeah. secondarily, this one was uh, even though I did do often have a plan, I had a plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Going, going to Kepler College, my plan was to study psychological astrology, and I've, right. I've told this story a million times probably on the podcast, so I won't recount the entire thing, but just the concise version is I went there to study psychological astrology. I got to the second year, and they said, you have to take this class on ancient Hellenistic and Vedic astrology with Demetra George and Dennis Harness first, and I tried to protest, and we got together a class protest, and we were going <laughs> to... We <were> gonna... <laughs> Organizing goes a ways back yeah. for you, yeah. Uh, But you were you were you were you didn't you were not successful, were you? No, because I assumed there was nothing to it, and there was no point to study older forms of astrology because I just assumed they were outdated and no longer relevant. And then, you know, thankfully they told us just to suck it up and take the class, and I, <laughs> I, I did thankfully. And then suddenly I found after a few weeks that I I'd found something that was actually genuinely very interested that I didn't expect or anticipate. So that's actually part of the answer, and that's again just circling back to why conferences like this are important. Important is I was really encourage you not just to, to go to the classes and the lectures mm. that you that fit what you what you like or what you want to know more about, but sometimes try to force yourself to go to a class on something that you've never studied before, you have no background on, or even that you think that you don't like or wouldn't be attracted to or, or interested in intellectually. Because sometimes if you do that. While you may find many instances where it just confirms your expectation, there may be those off chances where it doesn't, and suddenly you, you discover something really important that you otherwise would have missed if you hadn't forced yourself to have that experience. So that's the best piece of advice that I could give everyone, especially here at this conference, because you have a genuine opportunity to do that this week in a way that you, you otherwise wouldn't. Um, yeah. But then secondarily, the other part of the question was just how do you, once, you, once you've had that exposure and you know all the different approaches, how do you choose the one uh, that you, that you want to focus on and stick with? 
Uh, and I think that's where both of your, your uh, answers come into play, which is once you have, once you've ensured that you've exposed yourself to all of the different traditions sufficiently, that's the point at which you have to at some point just decide which one speaks to you the most. And it may, the, part of the answer may be that there isn't any one tradition that you want to just do, but instead you want to take a few different pieces from many of them to create your own system. And, and honestly, I think that's what astrologers have been doing for most of the past 2,000 years. When you go back and read books like by Valens or by Bonatti or by Alan Leo or anybody else, you realize that they're drawing on a wide variety of different sources, and the end result of their work is a unique synthesis that they created by taking the pieces that spoke to them and then putting them together into something new. So each of us goes through that process. So that's probably the best answer I could give to that question. The yeah, I think thing, that's really good. Yeah, the only little bit I would add is that uh, do choose something. Don't try to do everything at once. When you are interested in five different types of astrology, you've got to learn to maybe you know walk a little before you try and run. That's a piece of advice I give to students all the time. Just take a time to really integrate or reflect on or play around with this particular portion that you're really interested in. Almost say, I'm going to do this for six months or I'm, this year my focus in astrology is this topic. Take in whatever you can and then go on to something different. It, you will confuse yourself and make it a little bit harder if you try to take in a lot from four or five different disciplines at once. So that reminds me uh, of a piece of advice my mom gave me when I was 11, and I still remember. Um, I have a Gemini moon. It rules Random my rising. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I have lots of different interests. And she said, you know, also, you, can, you have time to do everything you want, but you have to do one thing at a mm. time. You, yeah. can't, you can do it all, but you don't get to do it all at once. Yeah. She's like, you know, you're going to be alive for a long time, you know, be patient, pace yourself, and you know, eat one you know, eat one <laughs> one meal at a time. At a time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. All right, there's one more question that we skipped in the back, in the far back, and then um, yeah. We will have to cut off at some point. Sorry. Yeah, it's eight thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So is drink. this gonna be the last question? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We will be outside after, but we will yeah. have to stop the official part after your question. Thank you for your dedication to the astrology renaissance in attempts to reach out to the religious community. I'm looking at the life in the chart of Reverend Billy Graham. And um, right now his progressed moon is at zero Virgo. And I just want to know what you would think about as a astrological community kind of getting behind and I don't want to say defend, but almost defend him as a person who he was. Um, what kind of statement that would make? Do you understand that question? Okay. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I haven't really looked at the chart of Billy Graham, and I don't know a lot about uh, his background. I mean, I know he, uh, you know, was a consultant for a number of presidents, but otherwise I'm not that familiar with, with him as a theologian or, or anything like that, um, so I don't know. If he I was an evangelical preacher. Mm-hmm. Sure. He attracted millions. He went to... He spoke Cor- for Queen Elizabeth, didn't he? Mm-hmm. He, yeah. um... It's in he, the crown. I'm not that well-read. Yeah. <laughs> He was Sounds a, really intelligent. It's just Netflix. Oh, sorry. He was a Scorpio born November 8th, 1918, and he died uh, six days after the eclipse on February 15th. He died February 21st, mm-hmm. and um, he attracted millions. He was a rock star, a spiritual rock star, 
And he would go, he went to Korea and spoke to 3.2 million people over a course of like three days. Mm. And he's just an extreme amount of power behind him. Mm. And he just recently passed. And I feel like as a community, we can, like I said, almost a, a, just state who he was and what kind of power he had to make a difference, to reach out to the religious um, community, to maybe awaken people. Yeah, it if sounds like he would be a really interesting um, chart case study, but I, I don't think any of us have... I, I would just say that, that I do yeah. think a point we could make is just I think it is um, there's an onus on each of us as astrologers to instead of, even though it feels good to stay within our own communities like mm-hmm. we do here at conferences, and this is really important, to reach out to other communities and, and try to interact with whether it's religious communities, whether it's the scientific community, uh, whether it's you know, uh, other communities, there's, there's many different communities where if astrology is going to move forward in society and we're going to have any sort of greater acceptance over the course of the 21st century, it's only going to happen partially by going out there and sort of demonstrating by having those interactions that astrologers are not just crazy people, that we're actually normal people that are, are interested in this incredibly weird thing, but that otherwise... Uh, you know, there, there's good people that we're not just ripping people off, but instead we're, we're uh, using something or have discovered some incredibly weird property of the universe. And there's something about that that's worth sharing with with the rest of the world. And, and if we do that, I think enough, then uh, it will help in terms of uh, not just raising the bar of astrology or the mm-hmm. status of astrology in the world and in the community, but perhaps in just um, making the astrological community not just a, a, such a small segment of the world in general in the future. I think that's true, and I think the way to do that is not, um, I, I guess I didn't like the term outreach there. Um, it's a, you're already part of other communities, right? You're already, you already live somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you, already, you probably have other interests. You probably work with people. Like You're already part of those communities, and being in a, just admitting that you're an yeah. astrologer in there, that, that's... That's outreach, but that's just being who you are, right? Like, you know, I was talking earlier about, yeah, I like wizard stuff. And so, you know, being, being an astrologer in the wizard stuff community, even if people aren't excited or interested in that, like simply being present as what you are in the communities you are already part of has, a, has I think, a very powerful organic effect. So you're not like, some alien, you know, coming 100%. from somewhere else. Yeah, you just, it's almost like that piece around just claiming your title as an astrologer. And it's one of those things that when people are, you know, transitioning into practice as an astrologer, when students say, like, you know, I'm stuck, I don't know if I can do it. And, you know, I, can, I remember the internal experience of that myself, which was the process by which I consciously became comfortable to claim that title as my own. And I think what you're speaking to there, Austin, is the idea that if you can simply claim and express yourself as an astrologer in communities that aren't astrological, that promotes and sort of shares with the world that astrology is, you know, created and shared by normal people, not like Madame Zelda with her crystal ball, you know. Um, that, it, and that's, it normalizes it. It normalizes it. Because it is normal. And, and then you become an advocate for astrology because we are all advocates with it for astrology. As soon as you say that's what you do, you are advocating for astrology in society as a whole. And I think the more we all do that, 
the, the better for astrology and the better for future of astrology and future astrologers. So that's one thing I hope that you would all feel a little more comfortable of doing after this conference, basically, you know. Yeah. So, and that brings up the very last point, which is Kelly, you said that you thought, you know, that the three of us are good examples that you can make it successfully as an astrologer, that you can in modern times. Uh, no, not no. just money, but just okay. that you can, yeah, <laughs> just that you can, you can survive being a professional you, astrologer. You, is, and you can, you can manage or you can be comfortable or you can, you can, it's sustainable. That was the word I had, that it is a sustainable choice and that, you know, whether you do astrology full-time or part-time, it is a viable option. Just like if you are an acupuncturist or you are a massage therapist or you are a psychotherapist, those disciplines operate business models that are very similar to what we operate as astrologers. And if those people can have viable professional options, then we can too. So what, like we are working with a very magical tool that is kind of weird and a bit misunderstood, but it is still a viable option. It's still, still a tool. Some people think acupuncture is weird and some people think massage therapy is weird, but it is still an allowable thing. So if we can kind of maybe take down that notch of, like it is special and magical, but it is not, like it's, to me and maybe I've been doing it for a while, it's not that weird or unusual like it is different but it's not impossible well maybe basically. maybe reality is, in, is yeah. strange and magical that's true yeah yeah maybe it's not us that is yeah yeah and, and if there's anything that uh the three of us can do or that we can do as a community to help mm -hmm. any of you to you know become more comfortable or to make that transition into being an astrologer and, and joining us and becoming more of a part of this community as a, as a practicing astrologer or just as a lifelong enthusiast, then let us know because that's part of what, what all of this is about is we, you know, we're so interested in this subject and so passionate about it. We want to share that with other people and we want to help people be successful uh, doing that, whatever that means to you in your personal life. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as part of that, thank you all for, for joining us tonight, because uh, I think this is, this is really great, and it was really heartening to see all of you in person, because we usually record these episodes ourselves, like on Skype, yeah. and put it out there, and like mm -hmm. I always say, we never really know who's listening or what kind of impact it's having, but to actually meet a bunch of you in person tonight uh, really means a lot, so thanks for coming. Thank yeah. you, Thank you.